everyone. Welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder and principal at Delphi Digital. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a minute and remind our listeners to visit DelphiDigital.io to sign up for our unmatched institutional crypto research. You won't regret it. Today, I'm excited to have on Chris McCoy, the co-founder of StoreCoin and co-founder and CTO of StoreCoin, RAG. This conversation covers a complete history of Chris and Rag's journey into crypto, the issues they face with existing cryptocurrencies, and their reasoning behind building StoreCoin. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, but it progresses from their reasons to building a zero-fee payments layer and the ultimate goal of building a platform layer on top of this. It's a differentiated episode, and I highly recommend a listen. With that, let's jump into the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have on Chris McCoy, the founder of StoreCoin, and Rag, also the co-founder and CTO. How's it going, guys? Hey, great to have you. That's Tom, thank you. Sure. Thanks. It's a pleasure to have you guys on. So, Chris, let's start with you. Give us a bit about your background and how you got started in crypto. Yeah, back in 2009, I came down to Silicon Valley from the Seattle area. I was building a historical sports social network connecting kind of the world through sports across from local to the pros from the 1800s to today. It was a hybrid social system and a media rights platform and um, met RAG uh, about seven or eight years ago on Quora uh, through discussing distributed systems, specifically in social networks. And he came on board the project to uh, help turn Storecoin into this distributed social networking system. And we sort of meet at these random restaurants in uh, deep Silicon Valley to, to brainstorm the next iteration on our development cycles. And um, over the course of time, we built this social system, 40 million data points connected across uh, 4 million networks and, and probably the most structured and labeled sports database uh, on the planet. And it was time to build payments in. And um, the idea was you do a deal with the Pittsburgh Steelers and you could share revenue back to the high schools that the players on the Steelers went to. Um, so potentially up to thousands of networks through a single API call. We did all this research looking at uh, you know trying to build build with PayPal. Stripe was really early, but the problem was with PayPal you'd get censored potentially, and they just didn't have the APIs to enable that sort of mass payment experience. And that's how back in 2013, 14, that we discovered Bitcoin as this store value programmable payments infrastructure that would let us potentially solve this payments problem within the social system. And so we actually tried to build on chain with Bitcoin. That was incredibly challenging. And we started building with uh, APIs that Coinbase had put out. And we prototyped some really interesting projects, such as uh, we called it fan mail at the time, which was essentially paid email. That ended up sort of in production over at earn.com. And we prototyped tipping through Bitcoin, it was really this vision that we could distribute Bitcoin to the masses through sports. And uh, every iteration just uh, couldn't get to the, a final product uh, because of how challenging it is to program in, in a rich environment with Bitcoin itself. And so um, in that course, we realized that Bitcoin was much more powerful than just payments. It was this notion that the Bitcoin ledger could could uh, generate trust around any piece of information, including data. And so we started experimenting with this idea that um, if you could take the identity of, let's say, Derek Jeter and write it to the Bitcoin blockchain, at any time a developer wanted to access Derek Jeter's, you know, call it authenticated identity, they would have to pay Derek Jeter Bitcoin. 
And so it was this notion that uh, data would be represented by a private key. And as we got deeper into our Bitcoin research and development, it was clear that that was not the primary use case for the Bitcoin ledger and and, and knew that Bitcoin wasn't going to evolve to, to support that. And so shortly thereafter, I uh, met the early Ethereum team. And you know one of the first questions I asked them was, can we write identity data into the Ethereum chain and enable effectively kind of a monetizable global API around identity? And, you know, the answer was no. You could build dApps with new money. And that didn't quite resonate with me personally. And we did some experimentations. This was pre-white paper, pre-token cell, um, but ultimately left the space a little bit disenfranchised based on the state of technology and kind of our vision. Uh, and, And so... A couple of years later, um, started a nonprofit called Data for America that explored looking at the role data plays in policy. And we even had uh, a prototype around a way for the government to, you know, structure all of its data in JSON. The government, if it does structure data, it's in XML, which is a fairly challenging format to build with. Um, and then, and then, along with Data for America, started a new company called Footprint, which was trying to solve chat and messaging within like franchise and chain stores. We cut a hierarchical uh, headquarters to store communication and, and quickly realized that there was a payments problem, that if we could enable uh, bots to pay each other, bots to pay users, it could incentivize a new type of communication within the workplace. And went back to the research uh, whiteboard and, and realized that, you know, because every time there's a transaction within traditional rails, you know, cost two and a half to three and a half percent. So micropayments were out of the picture. And, and we looked at the cryptocurrency space and said, well, has anyone solved this kind of in-app zero fee payment problem? And we realized nobody had. And so we said, let's, let's spend that research out and see if we can at least uh, understand it. And so that's how Storecoin was born. And uh, we've come a long way since then. But uh, that's, you know, that's the journey. It's 2019 now. It's been, it's been a wild one. That's super interesting. You know, one of the recurring trends I'm, I'm starting to hear is that early projects kind of got their start or some of them when they ran into issues with PayPal. And I think I heard that first from Jed McClay when he was step starting uh, Mt. Gox. I think he got kicked off and banned for life from PayPal um, working there. Yep, exactly. And, 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 and uh, any of us working with payments back in, back in the uh, kind of Web2 days, social networking days, absolutely ran into challenges. Facebook clearly created Facebook credits, but ultimately spun that project down. And, and so Bitcoin, this vision for permissionless, censorship-resistant, programmable payments, was, I looked at it as developer infrastructure that could change social systems. And, uh, and, and, and I got incredibly inspired by the possibilities. And, and so, obviously, anytime you go down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, a world of possibilities opens up. And I think Vitalik, you know, had a same, some same problem that we did. There's just not a lot you can do with Bitcoin. And, and so he went off and invented, you know, turn complete smart contracts. And I left the space for a couple of years. And here we are now with a vision for a new type of platform. That's super interesting. And, and Rag, tell us a bit about your background and how you got started in crypto as well. I know Chris gave us a great overview of, you know, your entire journey with him as well. But Duff, you want to hear a little bit more about yourself as well? 
Yeah, my background uh, has been in the distributed computing, uh, scaling distributed systems and performance and so on. So um, when Chris and I started looking into this problem, uh, my uh, goal was to uh, take the knowledge that I have in the distributed computing and see if we can uh, fix the uh, problems related to, for example, the scalability, decentralization, and so on, uh, which is still plaguing uh, the blockchains and, and the crypto systems. So we are not really coming from the cryptography perspective. We are not really inventing uh, yet another uh, randomization algorithm to select a, a leader, for example, for the consensus. We are trying to solve this problem from the distributed computing perspective because at the end of the day, that's a practical limitation. I mean, what you can do um, when the nodes are worlds apart, uh, probably connected with very unreliable uh, network where you cannot um, foresee or where you cannot predict the uh, network latency, uh, that's going to be the practical setup where the peer-to-peer um, distributed systems will be working and uh, so we wanted to make that as the center of the solution so that the the uh, the algorithm is not really just proved in the lab where you have perfect uh, network connections and perfect uh, perfectly aligned um, timing and so on uh, but it has to work in a you know, practical environment where everything can be unreliable. So, um, so to uh, you know answer it in a in a, in, a, in one sentence, it's uh, it's about the distributed computing and how can you bring that knowledge into uh, Byzantine consensus algorithms rather than uh, looking it from a cryptographic perspective. That's super interesting. So. You know, the way I understand what you guys are building at Storecoin is you're starting with a peer-to-peer -peer payments infrastructure, and then eventually you're going to morph that or build a, a type of cloud platform on top of that. So I think it makes sense to start at phase one here. You know, how is Storecoin addressing peer-to-peer -peer payments with the launch of its initial network? Yeah, so our project is laser-focused first on securing the base layer, what we call a, a zero-fee settlement layer. So our team right now is research in, in building this scalable and decentralized uh, zero-fee payments infrastructure. And as Rag was alluding to, we've had breakthroughs in our consensus algorithm that enable, we believe, a truly high-throughput uh, transaction environment with real true decentralization without sharding layer two solutions, et cetera. Um, and, you know, when we think about, take Ethereum, for example, it's two systems interoperating with each other, a base layer and a Turing complete platform layer. And we think it's incredibly hard to launch with both uh, layers and, and to, to, to guarantee security, guarantee, uh, you know, be able to sort of get protocol market fit. So our focus is on the first layer out of the gate. And, you know, we look at the Internet today, you know, there's over $250 billion of transaction fees across credit and debit card networks and across cryptocurrencies. And so you know, every time you swipe that card, you get charged, uh, the merchant gets charged 25 to 3.5%. But um, every time you send a Bitcoin, you as a sender get charged. And we think that removing the fee is a primitive to massive adoption for cryptocurrencies around the world. And so we're focused on solving that problem uh, to begin with. 
That makes a lot of sense. So, Chris, you know, I think it makes sense to address kind of two different types of competitors here. So, I mean, it seems to me you have competitors like EOS, which basically does free transactions through inflation, and then you have the traditional competition of Visa, MasterCard, and payment processors. You know, who are you most afraid of, or, or who do you think is going to be the most competitive here? Do you think it's going to be Visa, or do you think it's going to be another cryptocurrency that that can do you know somewhat of free payments as well? Yeah, so we actually we don't think anyone's really solving zero fee in a scalable way. So EOS requires the developer to own EOS, stake it, and then be able to rent the EOS computer, and then be able to print their own token um, as a utility token within the DApp environment. And you know we, we see a world where because the base layer miners do not demand to get paid in these layer two tokens, these layer two tokens are more or less dream coins. They're not backed by any asset, and that's a requirement for them to have properties of currency. And so as we talk about what's what comes after a settlement layer for Storecoin as sort of security with scalability is proven, Storecoin will open up its – the general industry term is miners. Uh, we use the term called decentralized workers or deworkers. Uh, it will open up sort of deworker participation to any one, any person, any entity, any bank, any fund in the world. Uh, and from there, the secure settlement layer will evolve from this uh, into a P2P cloud platform for the decentralization of data and the creation of what we call new zero-fee tokenized apps or T-apps. And this era of zero-fee peer-to-peer computing with data coins will be born. And uh, throughout this evolution, Storecoin sort of governance, which is the coordination mechanism for the protocol, evolves from being informal um, but present to semi-formal with voting and then fully ratified with formal voting. And sort of once ratified, uh, Storecoin will be fully decentralized. So the zero fee primitive um, with Storecoin is we use a you know a, a credibly low inflation, uh, up to two percent of the Genesis block per year, up to twenty million store to secure the network. And so this this inflation replaces transaction fees. This is how we remain zero fee. And so there is no sort of SaaS model like EOS, um, and and obviously Visa. And the card networks will never remove their fees. We think we can become the first truly programmable zero-fee payments infrastructure in the world. And as we introduce the peer-to-peer cloud, payments within the cloud environment will be zero-fee as well, using a similar inflationary model. Got it. That makes sense. So, you know, sticking on the settlement layer, I think zero-fee payments are important for consumers because we're obviously not generally accustomed to paying fees, but in crypto... It's more of a reality. Um, you know, not a lot of people like to talk about what Bitcoin's going to do after the 21 million cap. It's, you know, 100 years away, but it's worth pointing out that, you know, over 99% of the rewards paid to block producer uh, miners is from block rewards and not transaction fees. So I'm just wondering, you know, back to that point, you know, how do you think that zero fees, ref- you know, removes friction for crypto users? I'm just wondering if crypto users are already just accustomed to paying fees and they, they won't care at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, ultimately, we think it just all blends in the user experience, whether it's crypto or centralized services. I think ultimately the market will be uh, will just care about the best user experiences in the world. And so if you think about the foundation of the Internet, it was, it's actually built with this you know, sort of 402 HTTP uh, 
call, which is essentially says payments are required. So the internet was constructed with this notion that we'd have payments built into, into the protocol layer. And, you know, that was captured more or less by the visas of the world. They charge that two and a half to three and a half percent. So there is no real frictionless background technology for payments on the internet. Um, we, we think zero fee becomes, has the ability to become the internet's reserve kind of cryptocurrency. Now, users, we have to expand what a user is. And I think what Rag and I really see specifically with our cloud platform is this market of machines and robots and IoT devices being able to pay each other, pay users uh, frictionlessly in real time uh, becomes a real use case for zero fee. And until the fee is removed, we won't have this innovation with micropayments with nano payments, um, it becomes impossible for developers to sort of incentivize their users for taking actions inside their applications. We call paid API calls. Um, we see zero fee is unlocking uh, a, a, a new platform for what could be built, um, not just for users on the internet, but for uh, the future sort of machine learning, artificial intelligence driven machines that uh, we'll continue to see in society. That makes sense. And Chris, one more question on zero fee payments. I mean, on Ethereum, you know, UX and UI is, is obviously a big hurdle um, in the space. I know I always point to Dharma as having a gorgeous UX and UI, but, you know, obviously on Ethereum, you need to pay gas fees for any transactions. You know, this really isn't pointed to as a hurdle. It's I think the hurdle is really on the user experience or, or the user interface. Do you think that not having any payments will help with adoption because people don't have to say, you know, start at Coinbase and, you know, acquire Ethereum just to interact with the DAP. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, 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 it's been massively overlooked in the space and we haven't had this honest conversation that, you know, we'll just, we'll just use Ethereum for an example. And most protocols are built with fees, but this notion that I need to own ETH in order to send ETH uh, or to, to interact with the DAP. Never in the history of the world have we seen sort of massive network effects or global adoption with that much of a hurdle. So removing the fee just reduces friction in the user experience for users to interact with crypto-powered apps. We think it's an absolute required primitive for global adoption. That makes a lot of sense. So let's stick to the settlement layer. And Rag, I want to go into your consensus mechanism a bit. Can you describe what consensus mechanism you're using, if this is your innovation, um, and how it works? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is our innovation. Uh, again, um, uh, continuing from uh, what Chris has mentioned, when we started looking at the uh, the payment infrastructure, uh, we did look into the existing, not only existing cryptocurrencies, but also uh, existing consensus algorithms to see if we can make use of them in our implementation uh, to build the um, uh, build the Storecoin network. There were two things that are uh, that were very important for us as the as our design goal. The first thing is obviously the throughput. And even today, you can see that Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, have the uh, problem with the throughput, and the base layer still doesn't handle. Uh, massive amount of transactions similar to what uh, Visa and other um, credit card processing 
systems do. Uh, the second one is uh, decentralization. And, and that one is a little bit overused uh, in, in many of the contexts. Uh, for us, the decentralization is the ability of the network where the entire network participates in securing and um, uh, validating validating the transactions and securing the network. So that is that was these two attributes are very important for us, and we didn't find any algorithm that actually satisfies these two properties together. You could do one or the other. You can actually have very high decentralization or very high throughput, uh, but there were no uh, algorithms that uh, we could find where you could have both of them at the same time. And that's where uh, we spent um, our time uh, researching and coming up with um, uh, an algorithm called Blockfin, which actually ensures high decentralization high and high throughput uh, at the same time. So that, that's basically, um, you know, the, an intro to what block, Blockfin is. And the design goal is to have high decentralization and high throughput at the same time. Got it. That, that's a great overview. So, you know, back to high decentralization and the, and the throughput trade-off, you know, I kind of look at these things directionally where EOS has 21 nodes and there's a ton of issues, whereas Tezos has over 100 nodes or bakers and there haven't been any issues. And Ethereum's obviously uh, is way up there in the thousands. You know, how many nodes do you think you'll have to have or how many you know validators do you think you'll have to have in the network uh, for Storecoin? Rag, I'll take this one. So when we think about how we achieve it's really important to understand kind of from a consensus perspective what we're doing that's different than Tezos and EOS and Ethereum with regards to block production. And so they use leader-based systems where there's one winner per block, whether it's an elected leader, whether it's a, a winning miner. But ultimately, it's a fairly zero-sum competition. And so in our system, all participants in consensus are rewarded for every block. So we call it leaderless. Uh, and Algorand has a similar model, actually, which we have a lot of respect for. And then the second piece that's different is instead of one block being more or less published and verified at a time, we're verifying and publishing multiple blocks in parallel uh, all at once. And so this is what leads to base layer throughput. So the quick explanation of this is we take what is effectively chain forks and orphan blocks, and we use that as a resource to start building the next block as the current block is being finalized and audited and verified. So as the current block is being finalized, the next set of incoming transactions start to get pre-written to the next set of blocks. And so um, the analogy we use is analogy in the oil industry. In the early days of oil, the only use case was really gas, was, was, was actually uh, kerosene. And the rest of the oil that was not refined was thrown into the rivers and the lakes, caused all sorts of environmental hazards. And over time, through research, Rockefeller and his team were able to find new ways to refine oil. And eventually, uh, they turned you know what was waste into gasoline, and that gave kind of the rise to the automobile industry. And so, what we're doing is similar with orphan blocks and chain forks, taking what is waste and actually turning that into a fuel uh, for fast block production. From a decentralization perspective, from a launch perspective, we're being very conservative with regards to how we roll out settlement layer, prove our security model, our inflationary reward security model. And each phase um, that right now we're in what we call the genesis phase, which is effectively a research and development phase. 
um, where we put in governance, you know, eight-year vesting on RAG and myself, uh, milestone-based token sales, no real ICOs, uh, peer review on our governance, peer review on our economics, um, long-term treasury schedules, you name it. And then our first release will actually be the Stone Age, and that will be early next year. And it'll be our test network. And uh, we expect to have um, you know, around 90 nodes in the network. And then we'll actually open up auctions um, for what we call seats for those 90 nodes. And so whoever bids the highest will get to run the hardware um, and, and be a miner, a de-worker in the Storecoin network. And then we move from sort of the Stone Age to the Bronze Age. And then we move into what we call the Iron Age, which effectively is our beta network. And we'll expand capacity from a, a number of seats perspective, number of nodes. And then we get into kind of the discovery age where we look at it as our real production level network for settlement layer. And we expect this to be in the early part of 2021. And so 2020 is really about uh, um, having confidence in our security model and our ability to upgrade the protocol. And then, and then what we do is we actually open it up to becoming an unlimited permissionless system where anyone in the world can join Storecoin to uh, validate transactions and earn store. And we call that the revolution. And at that point is where we begin to put a governance in place, a formal governance of checks and balances where the miners effectively have the power to overrule the core dev team of the nonprofit foundation. And um, we think that once a formal governance of checks and balances in place, we've achieved what we call true decentralization and that there's no single person, no single entity in the system that has centralized control um, and that the protocol can work together to reach consensus on issues such as uh, economic policy, such as monetary uh, policy, such as leadership in the network. Um, you know, core dev uh, leaders can be fired for not carrying out the goals of the miners and, um, and I know we're not talking about governance, but it's core to us delivering a truly decentralized network. But, you know, in, in sort of unlimited phase, uh, we obviously can only guess how many nodes we think we'll have in the network. Um, but we, we have no idea. I mean, it's pretty dependent upon the value of store. The more valuable store is, the more miners want to earn store for securing store is the you know the more interest we'll have in participating in securing the network and then you know because we're now starting to publicly talk about our plans for platform this zero fee peer-to-peer cloud computing platform um, you know we think that if miners believe these data coins to be valuable that they'll want to get in early and become early miners in store so they have sort of a, a, a first seat a first right to mine the data coin platform Makes sense, Chris. That's a great overview. And, you know, I want to go into governance a bit later and obviously the platform layer, but just two more questions on the settlement layer. You know, for those new to the story or maybe new to crypto, what would be the closest parallel, do you think? Uh, might be a better question for RAG, but what's the closest parallel consensus mechanism you think in, exists in the market today? So, uh, there is no direct uh, comparison to what we are doing, especially uh, the part uh, where Chris mentioned we are turning the waste into um, um, 
into producing the future blocks as the current block is being validated. Um, that's something that I have not seen uh, anyone else doing it. Uh, but if you just look at the, the individual parts that we are doing, for example, uh, asynchronous uh, processing, there are quite a few uh, asynchronous um, consensus algorithms like Algorand, for example, uh, and leaderless also. Uh, uh, there are certain leaderless algorithms um, that, that are that are in the market but what we are doing is uh, using the combination of uh, these uh, individual uh, strengths to build a block fin and the other core design that we have that we have not seen anywhere else is a a two-tier network uh, consisting of what we call as a validator node network and a message node network so you can at a very high level you can think it is like miners uh, and the full nodes in bitcoin for example but the big difference is when a transaction comes in it is not broadcast into the validator network because there can be a potentially you know hundreds or thousands of these nodes in the network and uh, broadcasting every transaction to all the other nodes uh, is is a very expensive um, operation in terms of the communication cost it's usually called o n square uh, complexity so we are trying to minimize um, that complexity by having the two tier network where the uh, validators basically batch the transactions incoming transactions and then send the batches of the transactions to the message node network which which in fact uh, perform the the consensus run the consensus algorithm to to assemble the next block and once a block is assembled validators will come back and then uh, validate the transactions and finalize the block so the the specifics of how we uh, how we assemble the transactions into blocks how the blocks are created uh, is something that is unique to us but the individual parts such as asynchronous processing leaderless um, uh, uh, consensus etc uh, are available um, in in other projects as well Excellent. So I want to go on to the, the cloud layer in, a, in one more question. Just to close out the settlement discussion, Chris, you know, what do you think your timeline is broadly um, when we will see a testnet or when we will see a mainnet, do you think, for the settlement layer? Yeah, we're committed to delivering a testnet Q1 next year. We're, we're, we're shipping daily on, on, on that and uh, starting to, to build out our partner network around staking, around wallet infrastructure, around custodianship, banking, uh, the complexity of building protocol, decentralized protocols that are effectively public commons is unlike anything I've personally experienced as an entrepreneur. Um, I often say that, you know, it's almost like you're building, you know, 10 companies in one company, um, but it's not even a company. It's a, it's a public commons. And, and, you know, the comparison I make when trying to kind of explain what we're doing is it's like a six-sided entity. It, it, it's partly a hedge fund because you have a treasury that you need to uh, make smart decisions on. Um, you have an ecosystem that you need to invest in. Uh, it's partly a bank because you have keys that you need to allocate. Uh, you have keys you need to protect. Um, custodianship and security is, is critical to our project every aspect, every we're, we're, we're a quiet project because we actually don't want a lot of scrutiny and we don't, we, we don't want to expand our attack vector basically. Um, yeah, we know that it will be a major issue as time goes on, but we want to be able to execute and research, um, with our heads down as much as possible without, 
uh, a large attack vector. It's obviously uh, very much a tech company. There's a tremendous amount of software being built and designed uh, and, and communicated. It's software that's built in a very secure way. Uh, many attack vectors and just how software is built. And so that's something we take quite seriously. Uh, it's obviously partly a nonprofit because you know, Storecoin will ultimately evolve into a nonprofit. Um, but you're building a public commons um, that, that is coordinated by governance. It's, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, you think about uh, uh, the government comparison is, is you know, it, it needs to be able to defend itself uh, from attacks. Uh, Storecoin needs to be able to potentially even mount attacks. Um, who knows what the future holds? Um, but there is no sort of security for these protocols, not a lot of banking support, not a lot of government support. And so constantly I'm building that in um, through our various partners and, and team members. And, and then finally, you know, we're talking about currency, which the history of money is a story of belief. And the moment that I don't believe that your currency is any valuable, meaning I don't think someone else will accept it in a trade, I, your currency starts to lose belief and and belief is somewhat synonymous with religion and so we're very much building a belief system in uh, zero fee payments and zero fee cloud computing and this notion that data can be open data can be tokenized and open and tokenized data is the foundation for this next shift in computing and so Thanks. that's that makes it. a lot of sense chris said no that that's super interesting and you know, i want to switch gears just so we have enough time to discuss it i want to talk about the state of the hyperscale market and kind of how the next iteration of Storecoin, the platform layer, will play into this. Um, I, I was previously on the cloud and communications team at Oppenheimer that covered AWS and Microsoft Azure and everything. And, you know, their growth every quarter, it was like 100% was just insane. And the ecosystem and the, the thousand products AWS released each year was just incredible. Um, but I want to hear your side of it. I mean, what do you think is the state of the hyperscale market and what do you think are the issues with it? Yeah, I mean, take a look at, just go back to, this is more philosophical. Back when Stuart Brand said, hey, information wants to be free, he also said it wants to be expensive. And, and, and the internet evolved and information became, it became much cheaper to share information. It used to be very expensive. But the problem is centralized companies on top of this sort of decentralized internet structured that, captured that information into applications, structured it, um, labeled it and, and more or less built data monopolies. And so we think it's time for data to be set free. And, you know, you look at the history of technology, it's whether it's, you know, the, the mainframe IBM hardware era where Microsoft opened it up with DOS. All of a sudden there was a computing platform, but then Microsoft created proprietary scripts that more or less closed the ecosystem. And then Netscape attempted to basically front run them with a new platform, the internet, uh, browser, and they use their uh, monopoly to uh, shut down Netscape. But that that when Netscape took them to court, that opened up um, a truly fascinating era with the rise of Google and the rise of Facebook. These companies who are world class at acquiring information in very unstructured way, unstructured data, unstructured information, and instantly structuring it and labeling it for their algorithms for for less uh, their are artificial intelligence based systems to use to you know rank search you know uh, rank pages to show you what's most interesting from 
a friend of a friend. And they became these machine learning, artificial intelligence, structured data monopolies that, you know, a handful of companies control the world structured information. And we think that, you know, we're, we're in a closed era of computing. What's next? Uh, where these centralized apps and services own majority of the access to data, we think that decentralized peer-to-peer databases, public blockchains, is the technology shift that will open up and tokenize data in a disruptive way that will change the flow of how value is captured on the entire internet. And the role Amazon plays in that and these other cloud computing systems, public clouds, is they effectively lead to data decentralization. Developers sort of pay you know, AWS, fiat currencies um, for cloud computing resources. You know, I think there's studies that show, I think Chamath at Social Capital said that you know, 100% of his companies are on Amazon and collectively they pay around 16% of their operating expenses to Amazon. And so he has this really phenomenal quote that says, if the internet is to become this sort of multi-deca trillion dollar industry, who, you know, and Amazon effectively is a tax on that industry, um, Amazon Web Services. And, 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 and so Amazon Web Services is in, a, is in a great position as a business. But we think what happens is in this centralized uh, cloud computing environment, developers end up controlling their data and typically sell ads to monetize their applications. And therefore, the public Internet remains centralized and controlled by those who control the data. And so we think that there's um, a way to open up and tokenize data um, that gives us a new uh, a new platform for computing. And that's where we're headed with Storecoin. That, that's super interesting, Chris. I like that. I like the discussion around your philosophy around AWS. That's super interesting. So, you know, I guess one of the hard parts or, or one of the, the tough parts for Storecoin is going to be that transition from a settlements layer to a platform layer. Do you think this is something like Ethereum 1.0 to Serenity, or do you think that this is more of, you know, just an attachment or a component that's built on top. I'm just trying to get a sense of the breadth of, of how hard this transition or expansion is going to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that if we do the right things and focus on security and scalability, the settlement layer that the, the miners of Storecoin can naturally evolve into a uh, more or less cloud computing platform. And from a challenge, from a technology perspective, we'll have time to through a separate team, build platform, um, build the tools and services, so miners can effectively containerize data and decentralize data directly into the protocol layer um, while we continue to gain uh, confidence and security around the settlement layer. But the big challenge will really be in governance for us because we're committed to decentralization through governance, meaning our miners vote and our miners can overrule the nonprofit through checks and balances. And so if for whatever reason our miners don't think data coins will be valuable, then it's possible they vote not to upgrade the platform. And so a lot of what we're doing now, we've been researching this for quite some time, um, finally starting to talk about platform because as we get ready for, you know, a next milestone-based token sell, we uh, we ultimately want to attract um, store owners who want to mine the future data of the Internet through the store cloud platform. Um, But the rest of it is just execution, and, you know, you can't get away from how important just execution focuses as a team, a global team that's, that's growing. Um, it's, 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 it's a massive effort what we're undertaking here. But execution is, is number one for us. We're very focused on that. 
Um, but but two is is um, being able to secure what we what we build, and security is is is, is ultimately the number one uh, feature that's required for us to be able to upgrade into a cloud platform. And so with Ethereum, it's different because they don't have a formal governance. Um, you know, sort of the, the land of Ethereum has, for the most part, been allocated. There's major owners already, um, and it's fairly political to upgrade to kind of ETH2, which, you know, um, we wish them the best, and it's a massive undertaking. And, uh, you know, we think at the same time, ETH1, there's a lot of opportunities to uh, have a more scalable base layer. And, and if, 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 you know, if they did just that, if they just focused on ETH1 to increase the scalability with security, uh, that their vision for smart contracts, platform, DeFi, ETH2 would probably evolve. It would, it would open up the possibilities of, of what a scalable, truly decentralized in terms of you know, tens of thousands of nodes participating can look like. But um, you know, they're, they're learning as well. We're all, in, we're all running experiments and, and none of us can claim to be right 100% of the time. Um, but I think we all recognize the importance of security and, and scalability. And, and Ethereum certainly working on trying to solve for that. Got it. And yeah, I mean, that's a great point on, on Ethereum 1.0. I think that you know, now there's renewed interest in making sure ETH 1.0 is here to survive. And you know, I think the developers are running into things that they have to contend with, like state rent and, and things like and storage pruning and, and things like that to make sure ETH1 is here long enough for us to get to ETH2. But, you know, back to your point, Chris, on the platform level, you know, I don't know who said it. I think it might have been Bill Gross or, or somebody else that a competitor has to be 10 times better to win. Um, you know, do you envision a world where you can be, let's say, equal to AWS on transaction speed and costs and then you're 10 times better in that, you know, consumers own their data and can use it as they want. I'm just wondering, you know, where the benefits are over AWS, just to put it into perspective for the listeners here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to what our vision for data is, right? So we talk about philosophy and centralization. So we see this world that if data is an asset, it can be tokenized and decentralized into a public blockchain. Uh, So our core belief at StoreCoin is that every meaningful piece of data in the world will eventually be represented by a private key, and that data will be tokenized. It will be decentralized into a public blockchain, and thus it'll have itself a private key. And so uh, we think that Storecoin will be that cloud platform that hosts these keys. Um, And when third parties like Google want to crawl, query, and access the data, uh, they'll actually have to pay the token representing the data, which we call a data coin, uh, back to the miner's and the developers securing and storing it. And the developers who really are charged with structuring, acquiring, and labeling data so it actually is valuable to third parties, especially machine learning and artificial intelligence-driven organizations, um, they can actually pay their users as well, optionally. We think a market will develop around that. So we see a world where token and op- tokenized and open data can kind of limit the control that these data monopolies of today have on future innovation tomorrow while ushering in this kind of new era of computing. And going back to the Stuart Brand quote, we think that this platform is how information can finally be set free. And, and so as we look at the benefits over, say, Amazon, is you know, we can argue that a great amount of attention and interest around platforms such as Ethereum 
exists is because it makes it incredibly easy for anyone to quote unquote print their own money uh, or sort of issue their own asset. And we just wrote an op-ed in TechCrunch that makes the case that um, money needs to be backed by some type of asset for it to have a monetary premium. And so Ethereum itself is backed by the security spend of its miners. So Ethereum as a base layer currency is definitely money, is, has a monetary premium, is on the path to becoming global currency. Uh, the currencies on top are just spun up with a few lines of code and the miners who pay for their existence and security actually don't demand to get paid to them. And so we believe that for layer two tokens to have a monetary premium, the miners absolutely have to demand to get paid in those currencies. Otherwise it's effectively like tokenized loyalty points. And so our vision with platform and our design for platform is that the miners who secure store coin not only get paid store, but they also get paid the data coins of the applications that are being secured and stored on top. And so these data coins effectively enable application developers to print their own money. And uh, that money can be used um, as a currency within their application, can be used to help fund application development. Um, And ultimately, now their data is open and available for the public to query is they can generate new revenue streams around their data. And we think that their data will be more valuable, public and open, than closed and centralized. And the developers themselves can continue to query the data for free. Um, But when third parties like Google and Facebook and Amazon want to query the data, they must pay the developers and the miners for that access. And that inverts the way the Internet works today. And um, we, we think the best developers in the world will want to build on the store platform as a result. Got it. So I have two questions there. I want to start with the dual token structure that you kind of described a bit there for each app uh, along with store. You know, going back to having the two different tokens where miners are paid in store and then they're also paid in the DAP token, can you give listeners a parallel to what that would look like today with, say, Ethereum and MakerDAO? Like, let's say MakerDAO was built instead on the store platform. How would we secure Maker using that dual token, or how would it be different here? So, let's, so with store, we're talking about tokenized apps, right? Centralized applications that are effectively decentralizing their data into the protocol layer into the base layer. So there is no sort of extra need for a web three or this, we call it another layer of decentralization abstraction. It's the app is decentralizing and opening its data into the base layer. And the miners take on the form of cloud compute uh, data centers as a result. Um, so, so we're definitely not a platform for more D apps. Um, it's an entirely new design for platform. Um, secondly, with regards to MakerDAO, we think, you know, ETH has a monetary premium. MakerDAO is fascinating. We think MakerDAO will likely attempt to recreate itself on all platforms with, where the base layer currency has a monetary premium. Um, and we also think that, uh, you know, it's not crazy to think that Ethereum won't take uh, the stake in Serenity, the stake tokens, and actually create its own version of MakerDAO <laughs> to stabilize sort of ETH price. So ETH has a better, uh, better properties as sort of stable money. Um, and so we think protocols will compete directly with things like MakerDAO. Um, but with regards to Ethereum, 
the, the way it would work is if you're a base layer miner securing Ether, Ethereum chain, and you're securing a 0x transaction, that you're not only getting paid um, in Ether, but you're also getting paid in the 0x token. And, and that uh, would solve sort of economic abstraction challenges where the miners today don't get paid 0x, um, and 0x is valued based upon its future utility as a money. Um, and because it doesn't have basic demand from the miners, you know, we're big fans of the 0x project. We're just using them as an example. But any new sort of token created on top of Ethereum doesn't have that monetary premium where the miners demand it. And we think that is required for layer two tokens to be valuable over a long period of time. Got it. So, Chris, is the thesis at Storecoin that the majority of utility tokens or, say, ICO tokens or governance tokens, whatever we want to group them all as, is is the idea that, or is the view of Storecoin that these tokens have no value because they're not being paid to the miners to secure their applications, per se? Yeah, we don't, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that the way we would characterize it is we, we think over a long enough period of time that in the absence of sort of minimum viable belief or demand for these layer two tokens that only a few will accrue value um, because they actually do get true utility. So they're valued more like a company would be valued. Um, but ultimately, in the absence of sort of being backed by an asset or having demand as a currency. So why is this important, Tom, is the question. And we sort of look at gold. And gold is an example where I spend real money, fiat currencies, to mine gold. And I do this because I know there's a market for me to sell gold so I can recover my mining costs. And then I can speculate on some of the gold as well. So gold takes on a property of a currency because people, uh, it has belief, um, specifically belief that I can sell it to cover my mining costs. And Bitcoin, Ethereum, EOS all have similar properties. Real resources are put up, fiat-based resources, um, to secure and store the assets in these ledgers. And uh, they get paid the native currency, the native token of the ledger. And so that native token has a monetary premium. And and they get paid that token because they know they can sell it through OTC desks or on exchanges and recover the mining costs. And and so it's money. Uh, but when we look at the design of layer two tokens today, uh, across, for the most part, every platform we've studied closely, uh, we do think Definity's taken a, a novel approach to this problem, is that there is no sort of basic demand for them. There's nothing backing them. Uh, and so therefore, are they money at all is a fair question to ask. And, um, and so as we architect zero-fee peer-to-peer cloud platform for Storecoin, it's paramount that these Layer 2 tokens not only are backed by an asset, which is data, but they have the the potential to be demanded by miners. And I know we'll get into it in a bit, but we have a design around platform where uh, any developer can just buy compute directly from the miners and not actually need to get approved by governance to run for free. And so it's not a necessarily a zero-fee platform at that point. It's just a peer-to-peer cloud computing platform that enables any developer, including governments, to tokenize and decentralize their data. Makes a lot of sense. So, Chris, you know, I just wrote a report on generalized mining. I, I thought it was a great way for you know early investors or analysts or funds to basically bootstrap a network while also kind of you know accruing tokens and value beyond, say, an initial investment. 
it seems like to me from our conversation right now that miners can take a similar role within Storecoin in securing these uh, you know, dApps or smart contracts or use cases and then be paid, say, in the token itself. Do you think generalized mining is a parallel here for Storecoin or do you think it's more nuanced than that? We think it's sort of the next evolution of generalized mining because ultimately right now in lower transactions per second environments, um, low data footprints, the hardware and storage costs are fairly low for miners. With the store zero fee peer-to-peer cloud computing platform, there are real hardware and storage costs um, and many other costs associated with actually securing the network. And, and so we think, uh, you know, I, I guess the philosophy here is proof of work is a contest to acquire the most amount of energy for the cheapest price possible so you can maximize your profits. And that ultimately should give us energy breakthroughs that can take us to Mars. Uh, proof of stake is, is different. It doesn't require massive amounts of electricity, but at scale, specifically with the cloud computing platform that we're building, is the cost of data explode because all of a sudden you're not just uh, you're storing application data uh, in, in in the ledger in containers and uh, and so your goal as a miner is to secure the most amount of storage for the cheapest price possible. So we think what ultimately happens with proof of stake systems like Store is miners at least the message nodes in our system, Rag alluded to our two-tier architecture, the message nodes look more like peer-to-peer data centers um, than you running store in your basement. And so from an investment perspective, we, you know, there's another reason governance is so critical for us because it gives miners the ability to coordinate and make decisions. And we think once the peer-to-peer cloud platform exists, uh, these, these workers, these miners can more or less vote on which applications that they want to provide zero-fee computing resources to. Again, applications today spend 16 to 20% of their OPEX on uh, you know, services like AWS or just generally infrastructure. All of a sudden, the developer can have zero fees for compute, and the developer can print their own currency, and the developer can have third-party revenue streams through their data. So we think it will become a prominent way that the best application developers in the world want to build. Well, these miners, they don't want anyone running on their system because effectively it could spam their system. And, and, and the key to a successful mining operation is that you're profitable, that your marginal revenue is greater than your marginal costs. And so miners are going to want to effectively vote on the best developers and the best sort of application proposals in the world to run for free. And so this, in a sense, makes miners a new type of early stage but long horizon investor, kind of similar to a white combinator. Um, these D workers can vote for the apps they want to provide compute to, uh, free compute. And this sort of governance right gives these D workers early exposure to the data coins. They're effectively mining the data, uh, which have gone through a rigorous process of being voted on by other D workers who collectively believe that the tokenized data will actually be valuable. And so, you know, and it also positions these miners, these D workers to potentially become sort of equity based investors in these tokenized apps as well, or at least have early access. So we think this is a generalized mining opportunity that is very different than what exists today. Um, and the uh, miners can mine the data of, of, of potentially uh, the next set of great companies. And then the second piece here, Tom, that's important is let's say you're the government. Um, and you 
as a government wants to tokenize and open up your data. So uh, likely miners aren't going to find government data too valuable. And, and so does that mean that the government can't run on store? So what we're building in is what we call a paid model, uh, where if the government, as an example, wants to open up and tokenize its data, they can pay the miners with store. So the base layer store currency is the currency that the miners would accept to provide peer-to-peer cloud computing resources to the government. And, you know, government is a good example on two fronts. You know, one, the city of Oakland produces four to six terabytes of data a day. And multiply that across 9,000 cities in America, different levels, obviously, and explosion of sensors and uh, IoT devices. And data is only going to exponentially increase. Um, but, you know, the, the government has a rich history of opening up data. And a lot of my work within Data for America was about studying this. So, for example, um, GPS is, a, is provided by the government. So, government's work post-World War II and going to the moon, putting satellites in space led to the creation of, of GPS. And the government effectively open-sourced that. And that technology is what gives us uh, cell phones and all of the tooling around cell phones and maps and and, and, and drones and you name it. And, and so imagine if the government, instead of opening source, sourcing that, um, could effectively tokenize that data and get paid every time it's queried. And uh, that's a really powerful concept. And obviously not just for governments, but for nonprofits um, and for future kind of artificial intelligent driven device technologies as well. Uh, and so miners can get paid store and data coins for apps that they vote on. Uh, but miners can also get just paid store if apps and robots and machines want to build on this peer-to-peer cloud. And so the premium for store moves from being less about zero-fee payments because each data coin takes on a, a media exchange component. It becomes effectively a zero-fee currency. Is store becomes more of a resource for compute. Um, and, and if peer-to-peer cloud computing becomes demanded by the world, the value of store should grow because it's directly representative of access to those compute resources. Super interesting. So, Chris, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night, uh, probably, you know, more, more nights than I'd like, is competition between public smart contract platforms. Um, I think a lot of developers in the space uh, kind of hide this fact and more financial people in the space are more open about it. But, you know, a lot of people parse hairs like you're using this SDK, so it's not competitive, or we're using this tooling, so it's not competitive. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, Ethereum, Tezos, EOS, they're all in competition with each other because there's only so much developer time in the day for each of them to spend on a specific platform. Uh, granted, I think interoperability can, can make the whole pie bigger and, and drive new use cases. But, you know, how do you think about competition, you know, years out, five years out, 10 years out? Because it does feel to me that Storecoin is a few years away from its settlement platform. And that gives things like Lightning and Dai on Ethereum chances to grow. And it also gives AWS on the traditional side a chance to, you know, continue to slash costs and build out um, new innovations there. So, you know, how do you mentally think of competition in the space and, and Storecoin with regard to the timeline here? Yeah, so we're less than a year away on settlement, and on platform, we'll just be cautious about upgrading 
because we want to harden and, and feel very confident about our security model. And our security model is a maximum of 20 million store or 2% of the Genesis block that incentivizes miners to secure the network and store data. Um, 85% of that is paid to miners. 15% of that is actually paid to a number of other funds to incentivize things like uptime, uh, things like tenure as a miner. So a miner who stakes for three years versus three months will have a larger, uh, a larger bonus. Um, and we even see a world where Stripe and Square, for them to want to process a zero-fee payment, a zero-fee cryptocurrency, they're, they're going to want to get paid. But because we, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to add fees because store is zero-fee. So a part of our block reward will also be paid to payment processors and banking partners who actually distribute the store currency around the world. So instead of getting fees, you're getting block rewards. And then finally, the store foundation will take 2.5% of every block as well to kind of endow the protocol in, 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 in theoretically forever. Um, but from a competition perspective, I know, you know, it's been fun seeing you build a narrative around the competitive nature of these systems. And yeah, generally from a cultural perspective, it's been more kind of kumbaya. And, but we tend to believe what we tend to side with how you think, but we probably think about it differently so we look at um, protocols are all in competition for security spend. And ultimately, the base layer protocol with the most security spend, the, the, the most difficult economically it is to attack, will ultimately win, uh, whatever that means. And so a good example is if you have a dollar, Tom, today, you can go join a Bitcoin mining pool to add hash power, which makes it more difficult to attack Bitcoin. You could go, you know, uh, join an Ethereum mining pool in the future. You can add that dollar to stake Serenity. But you have a choice with that dollar. And you're taking your wealth to secure underlying peer-to-peer protocol. And so we think that all of these protocols, it doesn't matter what their use cases are, what their level of decentralization abstraction uh, DAPs or TAPs, it doesn't matter. They're all in competition for security spend. So, you know, we look at, you know, one thing we pay close attention to is sort of the p- private intranet world or the private blockchain world, which you compare it to the private intranet world of the 90s. Ultimately, most private intranet data um, converge into the public internet. And so we think private blockchains, for the most part, will go away and that these uh, private blockchains will ultimately converge into the most secure base layer. And so we're very focused on um, proving our security model. And then, again, as we continue to share our economic models around the potential value of data coins and data itself, if investors around the world want to take their wealth and store it into the store blockchain to secure the store blockchain and also to earn to mine data coins, that store coin uh, becomes, uh, you know, a leader in terms of security spend. And, and so for us is if we're talking to you as an investor, AKA a future miner of store, it's important that you understand the economics of how store can accrue value uh, through things such as decentralization and growing network effects. But more importantly, through the value of these data coins and how we think data will have a premium on it and that um, 
that ultimately that premium will result in profits for miners. And therefore, the wealth of the world will want to mine not just store, but the data coins on top. That's what we're focused on. That, that's super interesting. So, Chris, just zooming out on crypto overall, we're kind of in this extended bear market and your head's down researching with Rag and, and the rest of the team. You know, what do you think is something that could get us out of this bear market? Or do you think that, you know, we're here to stay? You know, I thought 3K was the low on Bitcoin. I'm a terrible trader, but I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, where you think the entire crypto ecosystem is going uh, from here, maybe in the short term. Yeah, we you know we're not traders; we build, right? And, and but, but we have to understand the macro economy to be able to navigate the complexity of the space. Um, you know, we think that uh, we thought your report at Delphi was fascinating, looking at um, price effects of kind of hard fork updates within the Ethereum ecosystem. Somewhat depressing. You um, feel like it because Ethereum is improving that that shows up in the price, but. Um, you know, there's a lot of competition coming online as well in that space specifically, and so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I think, you know, we haven't seen – we've seen protocol market fit in terms of uh, wealth wanting to secure base layer change such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, but we haven't seen sort of protocol market fit in layer two. And we think that's primarily due because of, you know, we think fees just completely uh, limits the potential for global network effects and adoption. So us solving zero fee within our – protocol is, is core to our research. Uh, but secondly, you know, ultimately these platform systems launch, not just their layer one, but they launch layer two. And without a secure and scalable layer one, it's impossible to sort of scale layer two. You can invent new technologies and introduce sort of technologies from distributed systems into sort of protocols. But what we're ignoring, practically speaking, is you know, and this is why we have governance problems in the space is people have treated protocols like truly open source where you're effectively governing data and software. But what makes everything different is that we're governing and building with money and that changes everything. (laughs) Um, You don't have to say much more about that, but that, that makes everything different. And so you, we need new types of systems for the governance uh, and even the scalability of money. And so things like sharding, we think potentially create, um, you know, cross shard communication issues dealing not just with data and software, but money potentially create liabilities that you'll, you'll never see us shard, for example, that will never be what we do. Um, so we ultimately think that, you know, uh, layer two platforms today don't have protocol market fit at the layer two level. Will they anytime soon? Who knows? Um, Maker is fascinating because it's taking money and uh, creating a new sort of asset class out of money. Uh, I talked about that previously, but obviously the, the happenings for Bitcoin will drive kind of new, you know, retail and institutional demand as Bitcoin becomes more scarce. But we think that the space needs a new vision for platform for what can happen on top of settlement layer, and that's what we're doing at Storecoin and a completely different vision in smart contracting. In DApps, the tokenization of data, um, the opening up of data, the monetization of data, we think is the future of the internet. It's the future of computing. And so we hope to be a catalyst for um, new f- types of participants to want to participate in this space. Got it. And Chris, my last question for you, I just thought of it, but I think it would be interesting to ask you, do you think there's anything that 
AWS could do within the next five years to that would you know be extremely competitive to you guys? Or do you think that what you're doing is such a rebuild of their entire DNA that they would never be able to compete on what you guys are trying to do? We think that any of these centralized entities who have centralized cap tables and public investors can never decentralize uh, their governance and how decisions are made. And that becomes the core competency. The real killer feature of the store ecosystem is this notion that miners who secure the network with their wealth, who store the data, can collectively reach agreement on the rules of the money of the software itself, reach agreement on the apps that they pay for, reach agreement on the economics of their platform in a way that, you know, these aren't just individuals like you and me, Tom. These will be family offices. These will be nonprofits. These might even be governments around the world who are mining store. Um, And we don't think that a centralized company like Amazon or Facebook can ever compete with a decentralized um, uh, public commons such as Ethereum or Storecoin. Um, we very much think that decentralized computing is the future of computing. Um, and we think that, uh, um, you know, we just have to stay on our mission and, and be able to get people to believe in store to want to secure and host store. So that store becomes unstoppable, a uh, global cloud computing platform, um, that opens up and tokenizes data, which gives us a new computing environment where we can set the internet free again. Got it. So Chris, you know, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to hit on? And and also please tell our listeners where they could follow you guys and where they could learn more about Storecoin as well. Yeah. So um, there's a lot we haven't gone through regarding the platform itself. Um, Imagine we're, we're just starting to finally communicate how this works, but if people are interested uh, go to storecoin.com and there's high level overviews that you can, uh, learn about our designs. We've in the process is open sourcing our economic models um, regarding the platform in terms of what would it cost for you to mine Storecoin? What's the potential um, yield for um, you mining Storecoin? And then, you know what's the you know when we started our research, Tom, we sort of assumed that um, there would be you know, kind of a, a zero dollar value to these data coins. Um, so all of our research is around what what does store what's the break even price of store need to be given the expected transactions per second, the expected data payload, cost of compute, firewall, you name it, um, so that mining is profitable for our D workers. And our research has quickly evolved into building out, which we haven't formalized it yet, but an actual valuation model around data itself. And I think when you answer this, when you ask this question. What can the value of open data be? I think um, it's a fascinating question to, to explore, and we'll be releasing that shortly. Um, but what we see is, you know, eighty percent of the data on the internet is unstructured. It, it's it's really hard to program with effectively, uh, whereas twenty percent is structured and, and labeled or semi-structured. So we believe that what we're doing is creating the market economy around data to become semi-structured and structured. Because semi-structured and structured data is what is valuable to third parties like Facebook, Google, Amazon, machine learning companies, artificial intelligence-based companies, IoT devices, you name it. And so what we think is based upon the quality of the structure and the type of labeling, data will take on a premium. And 
ultimately that premium will help drive the profits of these miners. And so, um, uh, in, you know, the initial economics of the platform itself, if an application is running as a zero fee application, meaning the miners are paying for the compute, the miners earn 30% of all third party data revenues while, uh, the developers earn 70% and the developers can then continue to pay their users if they want. Uh, and again, Miners are also earning ongoing block rewards from Storecoin. Now, in a paid cloud model where the developer uses Store to buy P2P compute from the miners, uh, the, the developer takes 100% of the revenues. And, um, and so if the valuation around data is a premium, um, we think the best developers in the world, um, for-profit, non-profit, government, will converge to this tokenized, decentralized peer-to-peer cloud platform. Got it. That makes a ton of sense, Chris. And for those listening, you know, storecoin.com to check out Chris and Rag's work. Um, and you could get on their mailing list as well just to check that out, which is interesting. And Chris, it's always great to have a, a differentiated type view and philosophy on. It's a, it's a breath of fresh air because I feel like we kind of get caught up in what we have a lot of the time, but Chris and Rag, it's been a pleasure having you guys on. I look forward to having you back on again soon. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review it so other people can find it. 